during Lent, we took one line from a poem by W.H. Auden to frame up our consideration of what Paul said about love in 1 Corinthians 13. This morning, we're starting a new series, also listening to Paul in a different chapter of that same letter, but we're going to listen to a different poem to frame up our consideration of what he has to say to us about resurrection. Andrew last week did us all a great service by reminding us that resurrection is not something that you and I give attention to on one Sunday a year. In fact, if it's not always with us, we don't reckon with what it intends for us, what it has for us. So I want you to hear a poem written in 1960 by the author John Updike. The title of the poem is called Seven Stanzas at Easter. And you will hear how he reckons with the nature of resurrection. Listen, and from a voice and a face that you'll be glad to see. Seven Stanzas as Easter by John Updike. Make no mistake, if he rose at all, it was as his body. If the cell's dissolution did not reverse, the molecule re-knit, the amino acids rekindle, the church will fall. It was not as the flowers, each soft spring recurrent. It was not as his spirit in the mouths and fuddled eyes of the 11 apostles. It was as his flesh, ours. The same hinged thumbs and toes, the same valved heart that pierced, died, withered, paused and then regathered out of enduring might, new strength to enclose. Let us not mock God with metaphor, analogy, sidestepping, transcendence, making of the event a parable, a sign painted in the faded credulity of earlier ages. Let us walk through the door. The stone is rolled back, not paper mache, not a stone in a story, but the vast rock of materiality that in the slow grinding of time will eclipse for each of us the wide light of day. And if we have an angel at the tomb, make it a real angel, weighty with Max Planck's quanta, vivid with hair, opaque in the dawn light, robed in real linen spun on a definite loom. Let us not seek to make it less monstrous for our convenience, for our own sense of beauty, lest awakened in one unthinkable hour we are embarrassed by the miracle and crushed by remonstrance. The claim of the resurrection presents to us a choice. Did it happen or didn't it? 
let us not mock God with metaphor, is one line of the poem. And that's what sets us on our way. Poets are meant not simply to allow us to consider beauty of things that they've given such attention to. They're often out to provoke us to wrestle with what they have said. And I want to show you someone who is wrestling with the resurrection in real time. But I want to give you a little of his backstory before you hear from him. Three years ago, his wife was diagnosed with a rare and lethal form of kidney cancer. And to grapple with the shock and the disorientation of that diagnosis, he himself was prescribed a particular kind of antidepressant upon which he became dependent and was severely debilitated. And whereas she went through this remarkable, he would say miraculous recovery, this man, in his debilitation over that dependence, had to travel to no less than three different countries to find some sort of protocol that he might be able to be weaned off of what he was on. And he struggled, and he nearly died, and they had to induce him in a coma for two weeks just to taper off the depressant. He's been through a lot. What I want to show you is an exchange that I gave you a, a sense of several weeks ago between him and an artist in the Orthodox Christian communion. And what you're going to hear him say is how he is wrestling with the resurrection. And he's going to say a lot in 90 seconds. You don't have to catch it all. I might just orient you to what he's going to have to say by defining one thing that he says. He will speak of the objective world History, facts, science, experiences. And then he will also talk about the narrative world, the stories, the myths, that how I try to explain ourselves to ourselves. And here he is trying to discover whether the objective world and the narrative world ever come together. At this point in their conversation, he has just started talking about C.S. Lewis and his own thoughts about the resurrection. So listen now to someone who is a quite polarizing figure in the wider culture, who I don't present to you because it's him, but because of what he says. Here's someone wrestle with the resurrection. You can debate about whether or not he actually lived and whether there's credible objective evidence for that, but it doesn't matter in some sense because this, well, it does, but there's a sense in which it doesn't matter because there's still a historical story. And so what you have in the figure of Christ is an actual person who actually lived plus a myth. And in some sense, Christ is the union of those two things. The problem is, is I probably believe that, but I don't okay. know. I don't, I'm amazed at my own belief and I don't <laughs> understand it. Like, because I've seen... Sometimes the objective world and the narrative world touch. You know, that's Jungian synchronicity. Yeah. And I've seen that many times in my own life. And so in some sense, I believe it's undeniable. You know, we have a narrative sense of the world. For me, that's been the world of morality. That's the world that tells us how to act. It's real, like we treat it like it's real. It's not the objective world, but the narrative and the objective world touch. And the ultimate example of that in principle is supposed to be Christ. But I don't know what to, and that seems to me oddly plausible. Yeah. 
But well, I still don't know what to make of it. It's too, partly because it's too terrifying a reality to fully believe. I don't even know what would happen to you if you fully believed it. Do we ever wrestle like that? Do we ever consider the weight and the, the significance of what it would mean for us to really hold to the idea that Jesus was more than an ethical figure, but who in fact was dead and then wasn't? Let us not mock God with metaphor. What does it mean to wrestle with that truth? We're going to read the first 11 verses of 1 Corinthians 15, and I'm going to, if you will, try to offer this sermon as an answer to that question. What does it mean to believe that the objective and the narrative world touch? And I think it comes down to four things we learn. The character of belief, the content of belief, the credibility of belief, and the compulsion for belief. So let's listen, if you will, if we just stand and listen to the first 11 verses of 1 Corinthians 15. Our central text for today is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. When you talk about beliefs, there are things that we identify with, that we, that we subscribe to. And here at the end of Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, he's out to recap what he's out said so far over the previous 14 chapters. And what he does in that recap is to say, what I've shared with you is not just a bunch of odd ideas. And you get that from what he says there in verses 2 and 3 about how this gospel is by which we stand, in which we stand, and by which we are saved. But it's not just a bizarre notion that like God is powerful. Oh, look, look at God's magic. He raised his son from the dead. Poof! That there's something to this belief that's meant to do more for us than just simply go, man, I don't have a category for that. And you don't, and I don't. What is it that he's talking about? Even before he gets into the content of what is this gospel, he's out to tell us the character of it. And the character of it centers on two things. If you go to the seashore and you wade out into the surf and you begin to feel that surge, 
you know you're either going to stand on that shore and stay firmly planted, but if you wait out far enough into that surge, it will take you away. And if I'm there with you at the seashore, and I say to you as you're standing out on the surf, stand up on the water. You being what you are, and the water being what it is, that's an impossible ask. You can't do it. But if you are there out in the water, and I push out to you a boat, and I say, step into the boat, and then stand up, guess what? There in the water, you are able to stand. You are able to stand up because of what you are standing in. Paul is telling us that the gospel is about resurrection. That's not just an idea. It is first of all a means by which we find our stability. Life is a deep sea. It is beautiful. It is treacherous. It is full of wonder. It is full of woe. And every single one of you in this room and every single one of you listening wherever you might be, everybody has to come up with a theory of how will I stand in the sea? You look for your place of stability. And Paul is saying to us, the, the gospel of the resurrection of Jesus is meant to be for you a place of stability that you have to go back to. You have to retrace your steps. You have to refresh your memory. You have to remind yourself that it happened. Because you will be tempted. You will be in despair. So many things you thought would be real and trustworthy will fall apart before your very eyes. What will allow you to stand in the sea then? The resurrection. It's not only a place of stability. It's also something where he says it's by which we are being saved. You and I know when we talk about the gospel. The gospel is about salvation. We get that, but let's not glibly pass by what we mean by that. What does it mean to be saved? By which we're being saved, it means that you and I are in need of rescue. Every one of us is on a path. Every one of us is trying our hand at life. And yet, if we are not aware of the forces arrayed against us and the forces that work within us, we will be in a ditch. We will die too soon. We will lose our hope. We will lose our footing. And this gospel is out to rescue us. It is out to rescue us from a trajectory that we are already on, that we are hardly and barely aware of. That unless this thing intervenes upon our path, we will find ourselves trapped and afflicted. This is the character of the belief. This is the answer to the question, what would it mean for us to believe this? It would mean for us to believe that there is a character of the belief, not just an idea that we subscribe to. It's a character that involves our stability. It's a character that involves our rescue. And he hasn't even gotten to the content, so why don't we now get to the content? What is this gospel? He says it there in verses 3 and 4. For I believed... For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He died, He was buried, and He was raised. Why? A lot of conventional wisdom, if not a bunch of conventional theology over the centuries, will say that what the gospel is all about is to confirm to us 
that God's love is incomparable and universal. Or that God's love is out to liberate us from our oppression. Those statements are not untrue. But those statements miss the centrality of what the content of the gospel is. He died, he was buried, and he was raised for our sins. It's irreducibly a comment and a question about the nature of sin. He has come to rescue us from our sins, what they deserve, what they will do, how they will change, how they will corrupt, how they will distort, how they will destroy. He has come to deliver us from our sins. And therefore, the gospel, its primary content is about one thing, reconciliation. It is about being set right with who God is and all that is good. It is to be aware of it. It is to be awakened to it. It is to be inflamed by it. It is to be compelled to flock in it. Reconciliation is crucial. It is the narrative. It is the deepest structure of what it means to walk in belief. What, you, you know that though, right? What, like, why, am I, why am I bringing up this thing that you, you say, like, this is so elementary. Why are we reviewing this elementary content? I'll tell you. Because the claim that the very foundation of our belief is all about being reconciled with God and all that is good. Friends, let's be honest. There are a lot of modern claims out there that would suggest that they are more foundational, more essential, more elemental than any idea of being reconciled to God or what is good. I'll give you two examples. The first is identity. That so long as you find and flourish in your identity, all is well. And until you find and flourish in your identity, you are lost. And by identity there in that modern claim, it's the idea of either physical, cultural, or historical markers. That's the narrative on hand. If you get that, and you flourish in that, and you're affirmed in that, all is well. And until that happens, you are lost. That's the claim. Okay. You know what? In part, there's truth to that. John Calvin himself, another figure both either revered or reviled, he would say that the mark of true wisdom is in part understanding yourself. You don't understand yourself, you're lost. If you think you're a fish, you will die in the water. You have to understand yourself. And to believe in Jesus, to believe in the reconciliation that is necessary for all of us, that is not to discount the idea that we should understand those parts of our identity that are physical or historical or cultural. What this content of the gospel is saying is this, that those things are not most important. They are not unimportant, but they are not most important. Because if you make identity in all of those other ways so crucial to how you think of yourself and how you get along in the world, you will spend your life trying to preserve it, create it, defend it, have it respected. And that's a life of exhaustion. Have you ever just considered for a moment, I say this with great humbly, and I, I, 
I hope I say this without the, without the least bit of, of arrogance, but have you ever considered how much of your life of living has absolutely nothing to do with any of those other physical, historical, or cultural markers? Making sure a kid doesn't walk into a busy street. Planting a garden. Checking in on a neighbor. Going on a walk. Listening to the song of birds. Sitting with a dying friend. So much of living has just very little to do with any of those things that have become so crucial in our discourse. What's crucial is that you know that you're a human. That you believe that you're a human. Again, it's not about making those other distinctions unimportant. Those distinctions are important. Grappling with them are not something you simply dismiss or discard. And belief in the reconciliation that comes to us in Jesus is not to discount those. But so much of living, so much of what you've done between 6 a.m. and 9.48 had absolutely nothing to do with those other things, those other characteristics of identity. And in the same breath, I might also say, do you realize how essential humility is to being of any help and not of evil in this world? Do you realize that to forget yourself and think of another is absolutely crucial to their good and your good? And therefore, if you want a resource for being so humbled that you might be so helpful, I have an idea. I have some news for you that might be ultimately humbling for you, and it's this, that you and I, apart from the reconciliation that God has wrought on our behalf through Jesus, we are nothing. That's one, that's one claim, one narrative that's out there that can easily be confused with as if it's the most important thing you have to grapple with. Here's another, empowerment. Being liberated. The amount of attention that's given to it is clearly out to remind us that it is an important theme, an important consideration, and I'm not here to dismiss it. Put any one of those markers of identity that I've just spoken of and slap the word power on the other side of it, and you've got evidence of how crucial this theme, this narrative, has seeped into the way that we think about everything. But here's the thing about power. Whether you are out to gain more of it or use the power that you already have, unless there is something more foundational in the way you think about life and of reality, unless you consider that you are accountable to something more than just either using your power well or getting power that you feel that you deserve, unless something is more foundational, then there is very little to prevent you from using your power or getting your power in a way that is harmful. Something else must be ascendant. Something else must reign. Paul Kingsnorth is a Brit. He's an environmentalist. He lives on three acres of land in County Galway, Ireland. I would love to visit him. And I loved, I'm going to love to tell you more about his story next week. But as I discovered him this week, I read this thing from him about the nature of things as he sees it. He says this, how to keep from becoming evil is the question of our times. My society is more divided than at any time during my life on earth, and it's going to get worse. 
Plenty of those who claim to want to change it for the better are in the process of becoming evil. Whipping up mobs, bullying them to silence those who disagree, using state or corporate or technological power to impose their will. The higher the stakes get, the more of this we will see. Why? But why? Is, is he just being an alarmist? Why are those who have power or those who are trying to get power, why are they at risk of either acting in an evil way or becoming evil? Because they have nothing else to prevent them from allowing to find their power, seek their power, or use their power in ways that don't harm somebody else. They don't have anything else that's more foundational to their search for power. The content of the gospel is this. Your greatest need and the deepest foundation of all your living has everything to do with the fact that you are in need of reconciliation with God and all that is good. And when you believe that, that is an astonishing way to either seek power or use power in ways that do well. That's the content of the gospel. And you might hear that and even nod your head and even say amen to that, but here's the point, or here's the question. Okay, great. So maybe it has a great deal of utility to it. But what if it's a lie? What if it's not true? What if it's just something we want to be true? That's the third thing that Paul wants to tell us. Not only about the character of this belief or the content of this belief, but the credibility for it. And he says on several occasions, this is not just wishful thinking. I didn't make this up. Four times he uses the word appeared. Why? Because he's referring to Jesus. Jesus appears first to Peter, then to the disciples, then to 500, and then he even says that he appeared to me too. We'll get to that in just a moment. What is he out to say to us in the midst of those appearances? He's trying to make this point. Check my sources. Some of these folks who are still in living memory, who are around, will attest to what they saw. They saw him die. They saw him rise. They saw him ascend. Some of those folks have already dead. But others, they're still walking around. Check behind me. Let us not mock God with metaphor here, friends, is what Paul is saying. There's a name I introduced to you about a year ago. She's a New Testament scholar. Her name is Paula Friedrichsen. She does not believe Jesus is Lord. But she's honest enough as a historian and as a scholar to regard this. She says this. I know in their own terms what they saw was the raised Jesus. That's what they say. And then all the historic evidence we have afterwards attest to their conviction that that's what they saw. I'm not saying they really did see the raised Jesus. I wasn't there. I don't know what they saw. But I do know that as a historian, they must have seen something. Look, everybody's got a theory about what happened. And sometimes the theory waxes and wanes in how convicted we are or persuaded we are by it. Some days I wake up thinking, what an absurd thought. But when it comes to the resurrection, you have to do a certain level of mental gymnastics to explain it away as only a metaphor 
or is only as a group hallucination, or just as an embellishment that became a legend that everybody just sort of bought into because of what Freud said about wishful thinking and projection. The credibility of the gospel, you, you can't believe in it without faith. I know that. But it is not a faith that is without reason either. It is not a faith without reasons for believing that, my God, it might actually be true. But that leaves us one last question. Because look, people are sick, people are depressed, people are addicted, people are struggling, people are dying. And when it comes to living in hope with any of those circumstances, the eyewitness testimony of the 500 may ring a little hollow in the midst of those deep moments of distress. Something has to push through other than just credibility. Something like beauty. And I think the last thing that Paul says to us about what is the nature of belief comes down to what compels it most. And the most compelling comment, I think, in the whole passage is when Paul gets really autobiographical. And he says, And Jesus also appeared to me as one untimely born. You push into the Greek phrase there, and that's rather a domesticated version of the translation. What the word really means is someone who was stillborn or who was aborted. Why, why would he characterize himself in that way? Because when you want to talk about oppressors, Paul fits the bill. He gave approval for the execution of Stephen. He had letters either to go round up or decimate the early church in different places on his way to Damascus. He's an oppressor. And he was a persecutor. And he was glad to do it. And he thought he was being righteous in his pursuit of it. And now in light of what he was confronted by on that road to Damascus and Jesus himself, how could he not think of himself as one who had no life in him and who had therefore disqualified himself from anything that God might have? He thought of himself as a stillborn. And what, what else can you do with a stillborn child but to bury her in the ground? That's how Paul thought of himself. And yet, but Paul was met with mercy. He was met with something he never could have expected. And three times, you hear him use the word grace. It is by the grace of God I am what I am. But the grace of God to me was not in vain. But the grace of God was working with me. Grace to him explains himself to himself. Grace is what most animated him in all things. It was not peripheral. It was central. He understood himself only as the recipient of grace because he thought he believed and was worthy of nothing. And it's grace that compelled him to do all that he did, even more than anybody that he knew. Grace composed him. Grace compelled him. How do you know if grace is at the center of your being? When you're slighted, you don't seethe. 
when disappointments come, and they do, and they will, it hurts, but you're not devastated because something else is holding you. Something else is stabilizing you. Something else is really capable of rescuing you like everything else could. Her name is Lottie Jeffs. She was a hard-charging executive in a creative agencies in London. At the age of 35, she lost a top job at a major high-level creative agency. And something shifted in her. Rather than trying to replicate what she had in the past, she kind of gave up that pursuit. And in a recent article in Elle magazine, she, read, she said this, It turned out that the unexceptional life I'd been running from wasn't so tragic after all. I felt happier and freer than I had in a long time. Yes, it was an ongoing battle with my inner monologue, but I wasn't failing. But to my surprise, I didn't burn with envy when I saw peers getting jobs I would naturally have gone for. And with that came a rush of relief. By pressing pause on my relentless ambition, I realized I didn't need to win anymore. I just wanted to enjoy the game. Besides, if this year has taught us anything, it's that success can be fleeting. Our expectations of what extraordinary looks like are alarm, altering too. Never before has the work of nurses, carriers, and cleaners been held in such stark relief to the influencers escaping reality to party in Dubai. Maybe the illusion of self-importance is finally being exposed. Kids, you already have dreams. You already have things you want to do, want to get, places that you want to go to. And all of those are great and they're good. They're just not good enough. They're not good enough to stabilize you because a lot of those things might happen and a lot of them won't. And I'm not here trying to be a Debbie Downer. I'm just saying this life is full of treacherousness. And all of those dreams and all of those good things if you make them the most important thing, they will disappoint you. And you have signed yourself up for a life of exhaustion and fear and disappointment. And what is true for you kids is true for adults too. If you make anything other than grace the center of your life, anything other than grace what compels you to go out, you will lose your footing. You will be in despair. Bitterness will be what you drink on and eat on for days. What compelled Paul, what must compel us, is believing that we are the beneficiaries of grace, of something that we did not deserve. And therefore, we are not out to impress him. We are actually out to enjoy him. And we strive in order to please and to give thanks. All right, what do we do with this? Where do we go with this? The closest thing to an application I find in this passage is what he says there in verse 2. If you hold fast. You have to hold fast to the gospel of the resurrection. In my backyard, it's not an uncommon thing to hear somebody say, a chicken is wandering off. <laughs> Quick. A chicken is wandering off. And you have to gather the chicken and put it back where it's supposed to be. Friends, belief can wander off. Conviction, persuasion, hope, love, faith, it can wander off. It can drift. 
to hold fast, you have to do something to keep it from wandering off. What will? You have to think on the resurrection whenever you have the chance. You have to think on it. John Calvin said this, He alone has made solid progress in the gospel who has acquired the habit of meditating continually on a blessed resurrection. None participate in the benefits of Christ save those who raise their minds to the resurrection. Raise your minds to the resurrection, friends. My wife had to remind me last week, honey, you know there was a resurrection, right? Which leads me to say that if you're going to remind yourself, it's not just an individual effort. It's a group thing. James K.A. Smith says this, there's going to be seasons in every Christian pilgrimage where you shouldn't be surprised to walk in that space of pain and doubt. Some days I show up at church with my doubts and I'm kind of counting on you to sing for me. So here's the thing I would like to invite us to do as a culture of belief and unbelief. Is that if ever you need somebody to remind you of this truth, I hope that you would walk up to them and say, remind me? And that they might say in reply, he is risen. You ever feeling it or not feeling it? I hope that you would just come up to me or anybody else and say, remind me. And I'll say back to you, he is risen. And if, you, if I'll do that for you, I wonder if you would do that for me. That when I come to you at moments and I'll say to me, say to you, remind me. And you'll say, he is risen. Remind me. It's a group thing. That it might not wander off. That it might not hold us and leave us. And that's why it is a wonderful thing that we have the table. Because it is a reminder. Brothers and sisters, let us hold fast. Let us not mock God with metaphor. Let's pray. Father, we believe, help our unbelief. We know its wonder must surely hold us and help us and strengthen us because it's your spirit that reminds us that it is true. And so we ask that it might, that whatever we are confronted by this day, whether we hate ourselves or love ourselves too much, whether we find all sorts of reasons for beauty in the world or think it is all a dark, power. We ask that you would help us to see and believe that he rose and that somehow its reality, its truth, and its beauty would come to hold us and allow us to stand in the deep and treacherous waters that this life is. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Before we come to him, before we come to this table, it's appropriate that we take our heart in hand and reckon with what he has done and who we are. And so I'm going to read this, I'm going to have us read together this public confession of sin. And I'm going to invite you privately to do that yourself. And then I'll remind you that there is no sin that is not greater than his grace. So will you join me in this public confession? Most holy and merciful Father, we confess to you 
and to one another that we have sinned against you by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart and mind and strength. We have not fully loved our neighbors as ourselves. We have not always had in us the mind of Christ. You alone know how often we have grieved you by wasting your gifts, by wandering from your ways, by forgetting your love. Forgive us, we pray, most merciful Father, and free us from our sin. Renew in us the grace and strength of your Holy Spirit for the sake of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior. Amen. And now here he is assurance. To all who confess themselves to be sinners, humbling themselves before God and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation, I declare the sure promise. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. In the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. Now you get to say it back to me. Oh, man. Remind me. But grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. To Him be glory, both now and in the day of eternity. Amen. Amen. Go in peace, friends.